You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Before we begin this program, I just want to thank our members of Wall Plus. You all make this possible. Thank you so much for being a part of our Patreon, and everybody can go join at wearelibertarians.com slash support. But we want to thank, first and foremost, our $100 a month members. That is John Pusilo, 7th. From the Discord, you can join the Discord at WeAreLibertarians.com. Casey Feldposh, Matthew Durbin, Jeff Bennett, Reinhold, Christy Avery, Jason Doolittle, and Ed Brehob. Thank you all so much for being supporters, and thanks to everyone who subscribes to Wall+. Plus. All right, everyone, thank you again for listening to Honest Defense. Today, I have the honor of being joined by Chris Spangle. Chris is the former executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana, and he currently hosts the We Are Libertarians podcast. He also co-hosts the Pat Down Podcast with one of my favorite comedians, the great Miss Pat. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks. Yeah, is that how you found me? The Miss Pat's the funniest human alive. You know what? I think we first met. I remember talking to you about this over Twitter that we first met in D.C., I think, at a conference. Probably huh. this was during the Ron Paul days. It might have been 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Two- I think it was through Young Americans for Liberty. And then, yeah. and then I re-found you, I think, through, through Miss Pat. Yeah, it is sort of funny that the, like people that may I may have run into, they'll message me like, "Hey, I didn't know until I found this thing." And the, yeah, the pat down is is honestly uh, really so much fun. It's a comedy podcast, and it's you know it's it's partially about racial racial reconciliation, but mostly it's about her crazy stories and her wild life. Like, just go watch Miss Pat on the cabin, and then then you'll realize who she is and what a force she is. Oh, that's right. She's on Burt Kreischer's new show on, yeah. on Netflix. That's right. Oh, that's a good place probably to get started with her. I'll have, I haven't watched that yet. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, <laughs> the, the drama when she's in the in the pond. It's just, oh, it's just <laughs> go watch it. It's so funny. I love her. She's one of there, there's only a few even among comedians. There's only a few people who are just naturally funny. Like they just can't help but be hilarious. Like I, Adam Carolla, I put in that category where no matter who he's talking to, when he's testifying in front of Congress, he's funny. Yeah. Miss Pat's the same way where she just starts talking and telling these crazy stories and she can't help but be hilarious. She's silly and funny and then super smart. Like, so I work for the Bob and Tom show by day and that's where we met because it, it, there's a lot of comedians that come through and she always just killed me because she's got such a different perspective and her story, her book Rabbit is one of the best books I've ever read. And basically she grew up in inner city Atlanta in the most poverty stricken circumstances you can imagine. And then she moves to Indiana and ends up in my hometown, which is 98% white. Right. She had never been around white people until she was 30 and then, uh, so I'm like, you, you live in my hometown. We started talking and a lot of the podcast is, is basically her teaching me black culture and, and she's learned some stuff about white culture, but it's different because, you know, it's black people live in white culture and white people don't live in black culture. You know what I mean? So there, there's a difference in, in us being able to check out versus them, but, um, you know, in our conversations, I've just learned so much from her, but, you know, it's, Speaking boldly is one of those things, and I just think, to your point, the funniest comedians are the people who don't ever really think how something will be said affects an audience, you know, and she just lets it fly and lets it land, and and sometimes it's just, you know, you're like, what did you just say? (laughs) So, yeah, she's, she's really, truly a great person and been a great mentor to me. 
Well, and that's what makes her so lovable is that no matter what she's saying, you know that she's just saying what's on her mind and she's speaking yeah. honestly. And there's so few places that you can find that today that I think people just gravitate towards it when they see it. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, I've, I've mentioned libertarianism on the show a few times, but I don't think I've ever really gotten into the details of, of what it actually is. So could you kind of just give uh, an introduction to libertarianism? What does that actually mean? Yeah, so and I host another podcast called Liberty Explained that kind of walks through libertyexplained.com that walks through this seemingly complicated complex thing, right? So when 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 somebody walks up to you and says, "Do you want to know about libertarianism?" people's eyes glaze over because they just can't think about a, a new world view or a new way of organizing society, and it takes a long time to kind of get get to the point. But it's very simple once you understand the basic axiom of libertarianism, which is not using force or violence to achieve social and political goals. We call it the non-aggression principle. And it's basically what you were taught as a kid, only extended to how humans organize themselves. And that is don't hit people, don't take people's stuff, don't lie. And it, and it's an extension of those basic mor morals. And so... We view the government as and, – and I know this always shocks people when you first hear it, but the government is inherently force. It is inherently violence. It is inherently immoral as a result because you are saying we've we have collectively decided that we're going to vote on what's, what stuff we're going to take from other people. Uh, maybe we'll give you some restitution in response to that, but we're going to take your property, we're going to take your, your earnings, we're going to take this or that, we're going to redistribute it, or we're going to use it for ourselves or for nefarious purposes, like in the case of war. Uh, and the morality doesn't change just because a lot of people vote on it. So that's the foundational lens that we look through. And that's very simple and that's very easy. It's very clean to say that there should be no government. But what happens after that? What's the next step? That's the difficult part. That's where it gets sticky. That's where you have to start talking about how do you feed the poor? How do you build the roads? How do you, how do you, how would healthcare be administered? How would protection from other nations who don't share those same values take place? And that's what a lot of the libertarian movement is about. And what my show, We Are Libertarians, is about is how do we, how, how do we get to that society where we have a, a, a more moral society? How do we work together? How do we cooperate? Um, and, and and how do we start treating each other with uh, more respect? You know, because in a market economy, in a market society where we arrange things through economic the economic lens as opposed to the political lens, you and I, in doing this podcast, had a voluntary agreement. You emailed me and you said, would you like to come on? I said, sure, I'm, I'm willing to come on your show. You sent me a, a, a document to sign. I signed that contract that said you can use my image. We voluntarily met at the same time. We're both benefiting it from you. Your audience is hearing my, my name and my podcast for the first time. I'll, I'll share this with my audience and you'll benefit from that. And that's that voluntary exchange that we have both agreed to, agreed to the rules, both implicit and explicit, that we want to organize society. So, you know, and it comes through private institutions that, that would care for the poor uh, and people who, who, need, who need help. Like there is no doubt that 
in, in any kind of society, no matter the arrangement, there will always be folks who need a leg up and, and need uh, to be aided. And, and also security, police, courts, there are violent people. There are security will need to be provided for. So we start with that basic principle and then start expanding that out into how would voluntary exchanges start to solve these social problems and what kind of community do you build from there? And then there's a bunch of different answers on that, right? Like there should be no government at all. Well, it's not possible. So we need to have a constitutional Republic or, you know, anywhere, anywhere from that. So it, it, it gets it feels like it gets it gets complicated because people start at the issues. They start with what's the libertarian solution to X when they really need to start at that basic fact of start with this lens and apply this principle to all of these other issues. And let's negotiate how we get from here to there. That's what always interested me about libertarianism is that you're starting from those very first principles of, of how do we formulate a society and it, it fascinated me because you go back to what the founding fathers were doing. That's basically what they're doing. They were the first ones to really sit down and say, hey, we're starting from scratch. What's the best way to do this? How should this be set right. up? And it's uh, it's interesting to say, all right, we're, we're 250 years removed from that. What's gone right? What's gone wrong? And the whole country is supposed to be an experiment. And so I think we're supposed to be thinking about these first principles and how to fix things as opposed to through the two-party system, they're kind of arguing – on some of the fringes of these issues and how do we, you know, should the, should the income tax be 37% or 32%? And that sort of thing just, uh, it's necessary on a day-to-day basis to figure out how, you know, we have these issues in front of us right now. How do we fix them? But I think it's important to also go back to those first principles and think about if, if we could start this from scratch, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the founding, I mean, the, there is no doubt that the founding had one very glaring, oppressive thing that it didn't deal with, and that was slavery. I mean, it was it was oppressive, it was tyrannical, it w- it left an imprint that still haunts us today, and, and set an entire race of people back uh, from you know until really the '60s. I mean, it, it's and you look and and a lot of people look at that and go, well, okay. All of the all of the talk of liberty is is BS because of this thing. But what the founders did is they set they they said, listen, human nature is always going to be a struggle between one group trying one faction trying to get over on the other faction, and we need to build a system that allows for the expansion of liberty. And I think one of the great examples of the ex- American experiment is. The personal liberty for people of color, for um, for uh, you know women being able to vote, uh, given the right to vote, I should say, um, for the expansion of gay rights, personal liberties. These are huge, huge wins. No, no one should have ever had to fought for their right, and there there are still a, a huge struggle for the recognition of humanity and dignity uh, in this country that people of color fight for. And I, I appreciate the system that has been set up that we can have that argument and, and start to to petition our government and fight for those freedoms and and literally just you know and end up in a better place than we started. 
you know, and that that's one of the great things about the American experiment that that really was in 1791 an enormous change in human history because it was largely families ruling, kings ruling, slavery was a given. Um, and we have we have really set the mold around the world to set up liberal democratic capitalism that has freed a lot of people and lifted a lot of people out of poverty. What got you interested in this? Um, well, it starts with Rush Limbaugh and my grandma. I mean, driving around my grandma every day in her Mazda Miata, listening to Rush Limbaugh, she railed against the, the you know, the feminazis and the liberals. Uh, and she was very political and just was very opinionated. And uh, it, it, I think she's the reason I have such a strong love um, for for strong-willed women. I mean, she she really implanted in me a love of politics. And then when 9-11 happened, I turned 18 two days before 9-11. And you get really interested in politics when you think you're about to get drafted. Uh, and politics has now taken an interest in you. And, and that just set off a long march towards where I'm at. I mean, I have uh, always loved history, always loved politics. And 9-11 was like really the thing that lit that spark, became head of the College Republicans in 2004, and uh, then, you know, ended up a libertarian just because I couldn't defend a lot of the positions that I was repeating from Rush Limbaugh that I'd heard. Uh, I have such an oddly similar story. It was my <laughs> grandfather who listened to Rush Limbaugh, yeah. and so I was a, a kid listening to that, and then 9-11, I was young, I was 12 on 9-11, uh, but my dad got deployed. And so that's when I started really getting interested myself in, in politics and what was going on and uh, developed from there. You know, Ron Paul was a big influence and in, in that sort of thing, but it's, yeah, that's funny. You have such a similar story. Yeah. I think a lot of people do. I think you, you get into it young because of where your family's at and what side your family's on. And then as you get older and you see the world in a different way and you start to kind of question what you were, were taught, you go, I don't know if that sounds right. Like, I remember, I don't think this gay marriage thing sounds right. I don't know if I can really support that. And then you say that, and then the hardcore Republicans jump on you, and they try to impeach you as college Republican president because of it. And you start to learn your principles really quick when you're challenged. Uh, and that's what I just try to do every day is challenge my own beliefs about things, try to do rigorous research, trying to understand where I'm at, uh, and and figure out what I truly believe. I don't feel that I have the answers. I don't. I feel like I am an authority on things like libertarianism, politics, history, journalism, um, because I put a lot of time and effort into studying it. But I still feel like there's so much I don't know, and I'm probably wrong about a lot. And I, I just gotta. I'm a work in progress, and I, I think that's one thing that I've rejected from my Rush Limbaugh days is is that absolute surety that I'm right, and it doesn't matter what information you come up with, I'm going to be right. Uh, you know, I, I just don't think that that's a proper way to do public discourse anymore. You don't think you can take everyone on with half your brain tied behind your back? No, no. I need my full brain. Yeah. So I want to fast forward then to to this most recent election, 2020. And I guess let's talk a little bit about the Libertarian Party first. It is it's the third largest party in the United States. I mean, it's a distant third, but it's been relatively successful at 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 least you know, getting on the ballots, getting their name out there more so than other third parties. Why do you think the Libertarian Party has relative, again, to the other third parties, why have they been able to to rise to where they have as, as being the third party? 
Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting to see the gap even between the third, the Libertarians and the Green Party. Right. I, I, I think it's – I honestly think it is um, partially because it has a very clear message. Um, it is fairly new in American politics, uh, not just the Libertarian Party, but like when you look at the origins of the Libertarian movement and thought – you know, you really get into Mises and Hayek and the early early twentieth century. You get the Laura Ingalls Wild, Laura Ingalls Wild. I always get her name mixed up. Uh, you you have Murray Rothbard in the fifties and sixties contributing to National Review and and starting Cato. The Koch brothers funding a lot of libertarian think tanks. Reason Magazine, the Libertarian Party was born in seventy two. You know, if if it weren't for H. L. Mencken, kind of nurturing. With American Mercury, the first libertarian writers, you probably wouldn't have um, Hazlitt and Rothbard and a lot of the thought that you have. You wouldn't have Ron Paul. Uh, So we're talking about a movement that is really fairly nascent, uh, which makes it unique, strange, interesting, seductive uh, in, in some ways because people are hearing it for the first time. And there's an element to the libertarian movement that this is some sort of secret knowledge that you can have if you come and join our club, um, which creates all kinds of problems. But I think really at the, at the end of the day, it speaks to people's fundamental yearning to be free and to have the boot of the state taken off of their neck. I fully support Black Lives Matter just as I supported the Tea Party because at the end of the day, those two groups have far more in common with each other than they might think. And it's because everybody wants to – they want dignity. They want respect. They want to be um, – they want to have their full array of rights. They want to have liberty. Uh, they want to be secure in their property. They want um, – they want – the ability for self-actualization. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. They, you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, security, and, and then at the top you have that, that realization of your full potential and waking up every day to live your life as you see fit, to govern yourself, to engage in your passions, to create and, and uh, just be harmonious with your neighbor and, and build your own uh, life. There isn't any human being that doesn't want that. Everybody's fighting for that. And libertarianism and the Libertarian Party tap into that uh, and really speaks to that fundamental yearning that exists within every person. It's a lot harder if you're like the transhumanist party or the, you know, even the Democratic Socialist of America. You're, you're kind of counterintuitive you're you're kind of upside down if you're if you're in the green party i mean they 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 are good clarifying um messengers for the existing political parties that kind of hold them accountable and the libertarian party does some of that with the republican party but at the end of the day there's something just fundamentally unique about the libertarian message that i think connects with people once they hear it so I, now I have to give you the inverse of that last question now. So sure. relative to the other third parties, libertarianism has done well, and I think for a lot of the reasons you say, but it's still far a far distant third behind Republicans and Democrats. I mean, in, in most elections, we'll, we'll talk about one of the libertarians' recent successes, but in most elections, they're lucky. The libertarian candidate is lucky if they can break one, two, three percent. Why have they struggled so much to to really build a larger base relative to the other two parties? The the popular answer to this is the Libertarian Party itself, but that's sort of a weak answer and doesn't actually get to the root of the problem, which is 
the absolute fundamental corruption of the Republicans and Democrats and the anti-First Amendment uh, freedom of speech, anti-organizational spirit of ballot access laws, of gerrymandering, um, of the Presidential Debate Commission. I mean, at every turn over the last 100 years, the major two parties have done everything they can, but especially in the last 40 years, to make sure that no independent or third party really has an opportunity on the national stage and especially at the local stage. You know, here in Indiana, we have straight ticket ballots. We're one of 12 states that still has that. It, it mathematically precludes a libertarian from from winning, which makes the next topic so so uh, interesting. Uh, you you have in a state like Ohio, for instance, that will they'll, they'll you know here in Indiana we have ballot access at two percent in the Secretary of State's office. Everybody in Indiana is kind of trained to know to vote for the Libertarians in that race, so they they preserve that third option. Well, nobody cares who their Secretary of State is. Let's be honest, but you care who your president or your governor is. So in a state like Ohio, they attach it to the presidential race and they attach it to three percent. And then if they hit 3% in the presidential race, they change the laws to preclude. I mean, John Kasich is one of the, the biggest villains in the history of the Libertarian Party because that's what he did. As soon as they got ballot access, he got rid of it. He and the legislature got rid of it. Uh, and they will do anything to change their rules. And it's hard to change it from the inside. I left the Republican Party because in 2008, at the Republican State Convention, 300 delegates for Ron Paul were tossed out of that convention. They broke their own party rules. They broke their own. They broke election laws. And then they did it again in four years later in 2012 to keep Ron Paul from having an impact at the national convention. Uh, so we're dealing with absolute scoundrels at, at all these different levels who are not interested in any kind of real competition. And that's the nature of the state. The state will not allow competition. It wants to centralize power. And so anytime you organize anything through government, you have the centralization of power because these people want to maintain their power. Uh, and so it's up to the people to be a check on that. So it's up to people to go and say, I don't want gerrymandering anymore. Draw fair boundaries. I don't want straight ticket voting in my state. It's it, I want runoff voting like they have in Maine. And I want all these different reforms uh, the Brennan Center is a great resource if you want to learn more about this stuff uh, that that will build competition because libertarians and, and Joe, you know, has has been bashed for her performance. And we can talk a little bit about that. But there's actually very little that Joe Jorgensen or, or Gary Johnson or Bob Barr or Michael Badnarik can do to affect the outcome of their percentages because the the. The real voter fraud that takes place happens in the legislatures. It's not at the ballot box or ballots being switched by Dominion. All that's nonsense. The real voter fraud takes place in the legislatures for the incumbent protection system that they've built. So why is it that you've you've chosen to go with a third party as opposed to, you know, Ron Paul was was a very libertarian candidate who ran in the Republican Party. And, and I agree with you. I mean, that was one of the things that really woke me up and, and turned me off to the GOP was what they did to Ron Paul. You know, I, I saw the success he was having when I was in college, he filled the basketball field house when, you know, I saw videos of him in at UCLA filling the tennis stadium on a college campus in Los Angeles, this Republican candidate was filling stadiums and yet the party did everything they could 
to keep him down. So I get, I get the, the, the desire to just say, screw the two party system. Let's do something else. But if the system is so rigged against third parties, why have you chosen to, to go that route? Well, in some ways, I've I've kind of given up on the Libertarian Party route, too. I mean, in terms of direct action politics, I don't know. Um, uh, listen, people people pay attention to politics every four years for about 90 days. <laughs> um, right, right. And so it's really important to have a Libertarian Party candidate on the ballot at any level you can, because that's when people, regular people, are paying attention. As a longtime libertarian, most of us know your friends and family only dare ask about a libertarian centric thing when they want to know what's the libertarian presidential candidate like, which it's a marketing race. It's very important who you have in that race because that's the time they're paying attention. Um, so I don't necessarily know that. Uh, now, now, I have seen the libertarian party be effective on the local level. You know, Rupert Bonham, when he ran for governor had an idea that uh, for vocational training, talked about it on the campaign trail. Mike Pence, being devoid of all of his own ideas, stole the idea after after he tested it, poll tested it, found it did really well, and then enacted that in government. And I have dozens of stories that I've seen over the course of the last 15, 20 years where libertarian candidates, because of regular interaction with their opponents, do influence policy in a libertarian direction because they're at debates, because they're at forums with their fellow candidates. And, and the, so these are important aspects that the Libertarian Party brings. Now, of course, that's all still nibbling at the edges. I do think that there should be a, a Republican Liberty Caucus that is putting pressure in primaries on Republicans, especially as they they slip away from any notion of living in government and and head towards power politics as the Democrats have, uh, I, I definitely think that there's a place in, for libertarians in the Democratic Party. I think there's a lot of positions that AOC and and others that a lot of right libertarians hate a lot of these politicians. But when you look at their their stances on police or or some of these other criminal justice related issues or even foreign policy. Our, fr our friends in the Democratic Party are ripe for a libertarian movement there as well. Uh, and there is a big section of the Democratic Socialists of America that would identify as left libertarian or uh, left market anarchists. And I welcome that. I'm not I'm not. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't want that. They, they're anti-left more than they're anti-state in the libertarian movement. And, and I reject that because we need to be on all fronts. You, when you, dear listener, wake up every single day, somebody is trying to take your liberty from you. And you have to be in the game. You have to be engaged. You have to be involved in whatever front. My personal front is podcasting. It is writing. It is translating how this stuff works. How does government work? What, why should you be engaged? Where, where are the resources that you can learn more? My, you know, I, I view myself more as a guide uh, to help people become the leaders that they need to be. Um, I, I'm not the Luke Skywalker. I, I'm trying to be a Yoda uh, more right. than anything because it's up to you. You've got to get the more we build on the local levels, especially, and the bigger, the more we threaten them. the The more powerful this ideology, the more power this ideology has. I've I've seen people. I reject the idea too that like all is lost because. I've watched county libertarian parties show up to county council meetings and stop $100 million projects with a video camera because all of a sudden those meetings are put on YouTube. 
when they've never been on YouTube before and all of a sudden those Republican or Democratic uh, folks who never really have challengers on the ballot box are intimidated by a YouTube channel. You know, so there's real change that can happen in in your local community if you get involved and get in the game. But it requires work. It requires getting involved and picking what you're good at. I'm good at talking. You're good at talking. There may be people who are good at accounting and could be a treasure for a campaign. Right. Or they're good candidates or they're good researchers or they're good you know, they're using their small business to help fund all those projects. So you got to figure out what you're good at and use it towards advancing liberty. I don't know if I'm actually good at talking. I just do a lot of it. So I, I just keep going. I I'm going to give I, you a solid B plus. I'll take a B plus. Then no, that's better than what I got in most classes in school. <laughs> and what's, what's frustrating, I think, about libertarians is that it is such a, a philosophically based ideology that, that people want to be philosophically pure so they'll, they'll fight with each other right libertarians and left libertarians even within left libertarianism and right libertarianism oh, yeah. they'll fight with each other and and they won't do what you're saying which is like go out there and present a united front or just just you don't even have to present a united front go out and do your thing in the real world and make some changes in the real world rather than sitting around arguing with each other to see who's the most pure libertarian yeah my buddy roger paxton hosted the lava flow podcast for a long time he's met him in the libertarian party he left the lp to start the podcast and then he left the podcast to start a farm uh because he just wanted to be uh sovereign and and just build work on liberty for for his own life you know good for him uh listen we need we need reagan's 11th commandment of thou shalt not talk ill of a republican here in the libertarian movement and a lot of libertarians are really from the republican party they're from the right and they grew up in an environment where the republican party had a very top-down way of thinking uh they're not good at coalitioning with each other they 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 have a, a message that you know, you, you hear about Grover Norquist and his Sunday meetings and the talking points and the Republican movement. If you watch The Family on Netflix, which is this uh, supposedly spooky thing of, of all these religious conservatives getting together, like they have a very top down culture. And so a lot of libertarians bring that same thought process into the libertarian movement. And it fails miserably because this is a, more like the Democratic Party, which is a coalitional movement. Uh, the Libertarian Party and the movement as, on a broader scale are coalitional. And people need to just learn to respect that there are other people who see a different path. Isn't that part of why we're doing this is to build a world where it is multicultural. It is open to everybody's belief. And if you aren't open to it, then you're free to go on your own way and, and huddle with like-minded people. But you can't pick on those people. And I think we often do a poor job of modeling that that uh, cooperative, harmonious nature that is needed because we're all trying to fight for who is the best libertarian, who converted the most, li who is the supreme libertarian commander. Like, it doesn't really matter. And I just roll my eyes when I see these uh, demeasuring contests on Twitter of who's the most realist libertarian. And I'm just like, nobody really cares about that. Like, this is very online stuff. Right. And uh, it, we need to recognize that the left Marxist, market anarchist is going to appeal to more left-leaning people, and we need those people to appeal to them, you know, because the Tulsi Gabbard fans, the Andrew Yang fans, are going to connect probably with those people more than they are on the right, you know, like in the Ron Paul crowd. And so 
I, I just I th- I am uh, I try my best to not be too critical of other libertarians, even if I do try to challenge ideas or tactics occasionally, just because I just don't think it's helpful. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit of inside baseball, but you were on Dave Smith's part of the mm-hmm. problem podcast. He's he's a big libertarian, and and he actually kind of brought me back into libertarianism after mm-hmm. I had been gone for a few years. So I, I do listen to him regularly. And and you guys had a little bit of, of back and forth. You challenged him on certain things. How how did you walk away think, feeling about Dave Smith after you did that podcast? Um, I thought I was going to have a conversation about the Mises Caucus and some of their tactics, and we talked a lot about my uh, a lot about Dave and my criticisms of Dave. And I don't have a ton of criticisms of him. I mean, I I, th- I think we are are discordant on some things. Um, he, he, he views things through much more of a cultural lens than I might. Uh, I, I'm definitely more on the classical liberal side of things. He's definitely more on the anarcho anarchist side of things. Uh, but obviously he brings a lot of people to the movement. You just articulated that he goes on Joe Rogan and it brings a ton of people like he's, he's a, he's a net positive, right? Um, and my message in trying to do that was to say to his audience, like give space for people like me to have a different point of view, because what I have experienced um, is a tremendous amount of BS from the alt-right types. And when you go and click on these profiles, they're often from like, you know, they're often promoting one wing of the movement. And, and, you know, it's not necessarily with Dave at all uh, because what, what happens and, and he, I think kind of got this too, is that you'll see screenshots of what one of these guys say, and then you react to it and then you don't, but you don't listen to their show regularly. And so you don't have the full context of what they think. And I, and that was a good learning experience for me to kind of go, I'm being unfair and I need to be more diligent about being fair to people that, that uh, don't deserve unfair criticism. Um, so I don't know that I necessarily changed any minds anywhere, <laughs> um, but I don't think my criticism of how uh, the more right-leaning libertarian approaches people with which they disagree, uh, I, I still see a lot of that same behavior. I see, see a lot of the haranguing. Uh, I see a lot of the abuse. Uh, and, and I'm sure it goes the other way. I'm sure it happens the other way, but I don't experience it. I don't see it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's just that... I just look at the stuff that I don't think is helpful and turns people off that I'm trying to reach. And I'm just trying to say like, let's not do that. Right. Like, um, you know, there, there's a big, a lot of these guys were like, Oh, look, Gary Johnson, uh, Joe, Joe Jorgensen didn't get the same percentage as Gary Johnson. And all these Gary Johnson, uh, were polled as voting for Joe Biden. So it shows they weren't real libertarians in the first place. Well, Yeah. The, the the presidential campaigns are just one big dragnet for new people. And then what happened is everybody just spent four years crapping on Gary Johnson, and people don't separate the criticism. They go, oh, they don't like me, so I'm out. So they never really become libertarians because nobody listens to them. So, like, my my what I've tried to say to my audience is, like, be careful about how you criticize Joe because there's a lot of Jorgensen voters. I'm I wasn't. The world was not lit on fire, um, and I don't think anybody would claim that it was by that campaign um, in terms of messaging. 
but there was a lot of really good stuff in there for the grassroots, for local candidates. We got a, we had multiple visits from that campaign. That stuff's really good. Let's talk about that stuff um, because otherwise you're going to get the person who's never heard of the LP, joined a bunch of libertarian pages, downloaded a bunch of libertarian podcasts, trying to figure out this thing that they think they might connect with. And if the message is this candidate sucked, everything about them sucks, these types of people suck um, – they're just going to bounce and they're not going to stick right. around. And then all of us go, wow, why did all the Gary Johnson voters not vote for Joe? I don't know. Maybe it's us. Maybe it's not them. You know what I mean? So, right. Uh, and I don't think that that, uh, I don't think I've been effective at, at kind of making that case to, to the people that I interact with on Twitter. I mean, I don't know anything about what Dave says or not, but that, that was my point, And I don't know that that, that, uh, that necessarily connected. Well, and I think, and I, you know, when you talk to anyone who's super involved in politics in in any facet, in any party, anywhere on the spectrum, I think they don't realize how little the average person actually does pay attention to politics. At all, they're, they're not ideolo- ideological. They're going to vote for the candidate. They they hear the name. They hear one thing that they like. They say, okay, I'm voting for them. And and you're right. It, it happens everywhere. There is. I saw on on Twitter. There's a Reason magazine journalist who said that. Ron Paul supporters who then went and voted for Trump were never really libertarians in the first place. And to me, it's like, yeah, that's the point is, is you're not trying to get people who are just going to vote straight ticket libertarian because you already have those people. You need to look at the people who are maybe interested in those candidates, maybe interested in those ideas and figure out how to get them to consistently support those ideas and consistently vote for the candidates who espouse those ideas. Yeah, I mean – when I was hired by the Libertarian Party of Indiana in 2008, I wasn't uh, – I, I was not by any means pro-Second Amendment. You know what I mean? Because I didn't really understand it. it. Like I didn't get why people had a problem with gun laws. Like I should have never been hired just based on that criteria, right? But like right. over the course of the four years that I worked for the LP, I went to gun shows. I shot a gun – You know, I watched guns being shot, I should say. Like, I was around them. I saw the care with which gun owners held their weapons. And and it totally changed my mind, right? Like, when you interact with different people, it changes both sides. And we have to be as welcoming as possible, um, you know? And, and I, I just, like, it's a very right-leaning ideology, uh, I'm considered some sort of left libertarian, but when you talk to my l- real left libertarian friends, they're like, you are such a fascist. <laughs> like, right, you know, like, uh, because I think Trump has moved a lot of, a lot of the movement very populist, very anti elitist, uh, in some cases anti, uh, ex- expert. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that populist stuff, uh, that, Trump pedals in that the MAGA movement pedals in is anti-libertarian in some respects, but I think people aren't challenged on it enough. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's um, like experts, for instance, are a function of the free market, right? Like I don't wake up every day excited to grow turnips, but somewhere out there is a turnip expert who has divide, devoted his entire career to perfecting turnip growth to get you the most delicious thing on a, on a large scale to ship to you. You know, it's the same with doctors and epidemiologists and, and, and like, I want, I want to be able to have a conversation, share a piece of information without being told I'm, I'm a left leaning statist 
for believing Michael Ulsterholm when he was on Joe Rogan. You know what I mean? Like the pandemic is real. The pandemic is very serious. There are things that uh, would be considered right behavior, like wearing a mask, like social distancing, all this stuff. But that doesn't mean that you're advocating for state action. You know what I mean? Like, and there hasn't been uh, over the course of this year a lot of room for nuance in any side. Uh, and it, you know, you don't have to advocate for state action to say the pandemic's real. But if the government acts, it's going to make it worse, right? So, right. Um, I, I just think we're very new. I think there's a lot of people who got involved in 2016, and they're very new to politics, and they're very new to talking about it, and. Uh, I actually, in some ways, have never felt more positive about the liberty movement because of that conversation with Dave, because of the conversations that I see taking place with a lot of different people. I think, um, you know, the there everybody's a lot closer than we think. It just feels because there's trolls that on both sides that make everything seem hotter than it is. Uh, that, that, that everybody's really far apart, and I don't think that's the case. I, I think in some ways, like a a Dave Smith, a Justin Amash, a Tom Woods, uh, you, you know, uh, I don't know who would, a left, I barely, I didn't even know left libertarians existed until two years ago. Um, all those people are a lot closer than I think everybody gives them credit for uh, yeah. and are a lot friendlier, you know? Like, I've, I like Austin Peterson and everybody he fights with. <laughs> right, right. Well, and it's this this culture war that we've had going on now for a few years feels like it's it's drawing a wedge between people who agree ninety nine percent of the time, and and especially libertarians who agree on, on government action. But this culture war kind of transcends government action, and now yeah. it, it affects all of society, and that seems to be the new wedge that's that's dividing people in in a way that they haven't really been divided before. Yeah, you you just have to focus on individualism. Like you have to you have to drill down and focus on like. This person is an individual with their own set of circumstances, and I need to understand them and check my own pride. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I fight this all the time. Like, it's so easy to assume people's motives or assume what they believe or, you know, uh, you know people are coming at me all day long. So if I get a tweet that's kind of cross, I, of course, think they're being aggressive and I overreact. And, like, I just since the Covington kid specifically – when I overreacted to the Covington kid and bought into the media narrative around him and participated in the in the def defamation, like I've really tried hard to stop and think and be slower to react and th you know and um and sometimes that makes me a lot less uh, impactful, you know, like lockdowns for instance. It's, uh, I am not Jeffrey Tucker out there. I am morally opposed to lockdowns. I'm morally opposed to any government action, um, but I also think that like screaming about it in a very aggressive way doesn't connect with people who are very concerned about their health or their loved one's health or they've just experienced a death. Like I don't know. I I think that slowing down process of of having a conversation in public has helped me to be um, more thoughtful, but it also kind of takes away some of the heat that is necessary in talk radio. Yeah. So the lockdowns brings us now to the, the 2020 election. You have Donald Rainwater running for governor of Indiana on the libertarian ticket. And we just checked the numbers before we started recording. He's, he's between 11 and 12 percent, which 
I was trying to find something definitive on it, but I, I have to believe that that's the best the Libertarian Party has has ever done at that level of election. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. that for a fact, but it's, it's extremely well. Eleven to twelve percent is huge, and in a, in a deeply red state, I know Eric Holcomb, the Republican incumbent gov- governor, was was really nervous because rainwater had been. There was a poll that that he was up to like at twenty five percent at some point. Twenty four, yeah, yeah, and and I. From from what I saw, it seemed like his number one issue that Rainwater was running on was the, the lockdowns. Why do you think he found that success in this state? Well, there's several different reasons. The first is Indiana is a very independent state. It is very stubborn, and it's very slow to change. You know, we, we didn't adopt daylight savings time until 30, 40 years after everybody else did. <laughs> I didn't know uh, that. And it's still under debate. Like, it's still, yeah, like, they, Mitch Daniels said, we can't have a, a functioning economy in the state until we get on DST with the rest of the world, um, to which many Hoosiers are still ticked off about. Uh, there's still Senate, state House candidates, state Senate candidates that run on that. Uh, so it is a very stubborn state uh, and a very proud state, and, it, and Hoosiers don't like to be told what to do. And they are a rattlesnake. If you, if you are um, invading their personal liberty in any way, they will bite you. Uh, we've had several big upsets, like Richard Mordock beat Richard Luger, longtime legendary politician, mayor of Indianapolis, legendary Indiana senator, probably the best senator, like the best known, most you know prestigious senator Indiana's ever had. And uh, Richard Mordock and the Tea Party beat him in a primary. Um. You had Mayor Bart Peterson with an upset win in 2000. Or Mayor Ballard beat uh, Mayor Peterson. Peterson had like a $3 million war chest for the mayor of Indianapolis. He was going for his third term. It was a shoe in Everybody just assumed he was going to win. It matched Eric Holcomb in a lot of ways. Big cash advantage. Big, you know, uh, all the experts said it was going to happen. Um, and then Ballard beat him. And it's because there was uh, property tax uh, hikes. Mitch Daniels didn't realize how changing the property tax formula would affect people's bills. And they had a massive, uh, excuse me, change the inventory tax uh, to be accurate. Um, and, and, you know, Peterson was up. <laughs> like he was, it, it wasn't Mitch that took the heat. Um, it, was, it was Mayor Peterson. So this state, this state voted for Obama in 2008. It, it is not a guaranteed red Republican state like Oklahoma or Idaho. Uh, and so it's a very independent-minded state, very libertarian um, in a lot of ways. You have a libertarian party here that when I started as executive director in 07, the base was around 2%. Um, and within four short years – uh, the base was five, and that five percent has kind of never gone away. And now the base, I think, is going to be seven to eight to nine percent. Lucy Brenton, in exit polling, and when she ran for Senate in two thousand and eighteen, everybody over forty one percent vote for the Libertarian Party. Under forty, ten percent of the vote for Lucy Brenton and the Libertarians. Uh, and so there is a lot of willingness to vote libertarian in the state because you have a really strong libertarian party of Indiana with a lot of longtime experienced people with a lot of good connections. Uh, you have a, a, a network of people like myself, Brad Kloffenstein, Mark Rutherford, who are continually engaged in Indiana media, Indianapolis media, um, you know, uh, Lindsey Horn and and. 
Brad are like on all the Sunday shows. They get invited to the Sunday shows here, you know. So there is a an LP presence here that a lot of states don't have, uh, and so there's structural advantages there too, um, combined with the fundraising prowess of of Mark Rutherford and uh, his deep connections in the libertarian think tank space and vice chair of the National Party. So, you know, the Rainwater campaign was a convergence of a lot of really uh, great things because. Once Abdul did that poll that showed him at 25%, everybody kind of wrote that off as sort of somewhat of a fluke. And then you got rumors of four different polls that were taken to disprove it, and they were better. <laughs> so wow. I, I think at certain points um, now, polling is polling, right? obviously. Uh, but I think at certain points, Rainwater was a lot higher than that 11.4% that he ended with. Uh, and I think that that really scared a lot of people including the governor. Um, and the other thing is there's a, a radio talk show host here named Rob Kendall uh, who who took on the weird position of taking on one of the most popular sitting governors in recent history and just beating him, beating him, beating him. And then when the pandemic hit and, and Holcomb did the stuff that he did, Rob had really tilled that ground on the Republican side, the talk radio sphere, of Holcomb is terrible, Holcomb is a Democrat, Holcomb is this, Holcomb is that. And then when when the pandemic hit and he took the actions he took, it sort of validated. It's like Alex Jones tells you they're trying to silence him and then you kick him off your platform. It's like, well, now you've just given him like credibility, right? Uh, right. So so you have a long-term LPIN, you have a, a popular talk show host who's kind of tilling the ground, you have a lot of experienced people uh, that... Like, I haven't been involved in the LPIN for eight years. Oh, okay. But once once this happened, I'm like, what do you need help with? So I helped with debate training. You know, Evan McMahon came back and did media buying. You had So you had all these people who hadn't been involved for maybe a decade even come back in and start to help. And they ended up with a team of about 14 people. Uh, and so you had – and then you had the influx of uh, $250,000, $300,000 in cash – you know, to give you an example, the best gubernatorial race was the highest vote total. Uh, not the highest vote. I think the highest statewide was like 6%. But Rupert had $70,000 in cash, 20000 in in-kind, uh, a headquarters downtown on the circle, an RV, uh, Rupert from Survivor. Like, So he had name recognition. He had T-shirts. He had a real campaign. He had four staffers, um, you know. It, it it was a real campaign, right? That 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 was run, and um, you know, that was four percent of the vote, five percent of the vote, um, you know, and that that just is dwarfed by eleven percent. So there's a ton of different factors, but the main thing is the lockdown. Like all those factors are great, but the message of of Don Rainwater was exactly the right message which is this is about personal responsibility. The pandemic is real. Now, he got accused of being a hoaxer. He's not a hoaxer, never was, never said it was anything but serious. He said this is a very serious virus. This is uh, not something that law can solve. This is not something the government can solve. This is about personal responsibility. So the government needs to give us the best, most accurate information possible so people can take proper action and let's solve this together. 
And if you do use state action, if you do a mask mandate, if you do these lockdowns, you put people out of work, you prolong all of the problems, you create backlash, you create resentment. And that's exactly what happened. He was right um, all along. And I think that really resonated with people. People are very angry about it. And and I understand why they're angry. Like, I, I don't think we can be under any kind of delusions that jobs weren't going to be lost. There was going to be a turn down. People were going to stop going to restaurants. They weren't going to go to stadium events. Like, you know, there, there was going to be a hardship, but all of that stuff, is it five? Is it 10? Is it 50% more job losses? A hundred percent more job losses. You know, I, I'm doing a, a talk. I'm doing a Sunday show here with nonprofits in Indianapolis called now Hear this 300% increases into the suicide hotline, double the food for need. At some points, Gleaners was quadrupling the need of food. Every single charity that, that helps students uh, has switched to food delivery. Um, you know, six Indiana Children's Bureau had 60 kids in April uh, that they were taking care of because their guardians had died or were in the hospital because of COVID. Like, there's significant impact across the board, and some of that is government-related. Most of it is pandemic-related. And so there's just a tremendous amount of anxiety and pain. And, and uh, you know, I think people look at the state to solve the problem, and that creates more anxiety for them, whereas Don's message was you can solve the problem. You need to take care of your family. You need to take care of your business. You need to do what's best for you. And that's calming for people. You know, so yeah. I, I think that message really did connect with people and really did did work here. So I want to actually let me first ask you, I was looking at the county by county breakdown and and these numbers are always changing. So, I, you know, I don't know what the latest numbers are, but from what I saw, there was one county that Rainwater actually had won. He had beaten Holcomb and the Democratic candidate. Do you know what that is? Unfortunately, that was a clerical error. But in the. Oh. In, in the in the nature of our president, I'm going to say that yes, Donald Rainwater won St. Joseph County, <laughs> and this clerical error was fraud, and and they're trying to hide their no, um, no. But it is really, uh, I, I had a conversation with an Indy Star columnist two days ago, and they they the the premise of their column was the Libertarian Party doesn't try and they could win if they did, and I said you're totally wrong. Like nobody works harder than Libertarians because they have no money. They have no staff. They have no, they have nothing, no attention. They have you people talking down to them. You know, it's like they work really hard. It's just the legislature has, has made it impossible for them to win. Um, and, you know, this person's a Republican, very influential. And I said, listen, man, Republicans need to get smart about this. Don Rainwater in at least 30 counties, 32 by my count, won second position in the gubernatorial race. And so there's 32 counties that if Republicans worked with libertarians, the fight would be between lesser government and less government, right? Like instead of Democrats versus Republicans, right. you, you could start um, – you could start uh, – sorry, my mic switched. Uh, you could start uh, appointing libertarians to state commissions because it says you need two members of a party. doesn't say which party, two – you know – 
like Republicans in the state have a supermajority. They have no real challengers from the Democrats. That that party is completely eradicated. Uh, and the Libertarian Party is effectively the second party in Indiana. They just have not caught up because of ballot access restrictions. And uh, that is not lost on a lot of rainwater Republicans and a lot of rainwater supporters. He's already recruited, I think, 60 of the 92 counties just based uh, of reactivating or activating new counties. He's recruiting hundreds of candidates from across the state. I think Don's going to be a real force to reckon with in Indiana politics. He's already announced he's running again in four years. Um, you know, he's just a hardworking guy who is exactly who you think he is. Um, no BS. And, and he's really connected with a, a lot of people in the state. And he's trying to leverage that into growing the libertarians into the second major party. And I think he's got a real shot at it based on the results. That's so disappointing about St. Joe's County because it was well, disappointing, but it also makes my head stop spinning because that's it's the home of Notre Dame, my home for three years. And I was trying to figure out how did he win Notre Dame? I, I, I couldn't know. make sense of it. How did he win South Bend? So I'm, I'm glad you cleared that up for me. Well, I mean, we, we've seen the bellwethers like Rex Bell when he ran for governor in 2016 won precincts when he ran for state house in, in 2010. He won precincts. He came close to winning counties. I mean. You know, there there is a real if somebody were to do a deep dive into the numbers in Indiana who were better was better at math than me. If you showed the trends from 2000 to now, you'd see a gigantic increase in the base vote for the Libertarian Party of Indiana. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I've seen it. I, I can feel it. I know it's there. I've seen it in, in the numbers. I'm not a math guy, um, but. You know, this was inevitable, and it's, it is inevitable that the Libertarian Party is going to eventually hit that 10% mark. And you know what happens then in that Secretary of State's race? You go into publicly funded primaries, which means those 150 to 200,000 Hoosiers that regularly vote for Libertarian statewide candidates will have those inf- their information. We can now fundraise on that. We can now recruit candidates from that. We can now do ballot initiatives with that, you know? And so that's going to happen at some point and it's going to uh, absolutely change and alter the course of Indiana politics for the better. So I want to compare or contrast Donald Rainwater's success with Joe Jorgensen. So Joe Jorgensen was the presidential candidate in 2020, the libertarian party presidential candidate. She, I believe now is between she's polling between one or not polling. She got between one or 2% in the election I think we looked in Indiana, she's right around 2%. So she mm-hmm. maybe did slightly better than her national average, but but not great. Why did she do so poorly compared to Donald Rainwater? Um, again, that bottom-up, long-term tilling of the ground in Indiana led to the success. If Don Rainwater had won the governor's race and walked into a place of power, he would have been in a lot of trouble in some ways because – he had no grassroots base behind him. You know, you you don't have contacts in the press, in the establishment, in the bureaucracy, in the in, in the legislature, and all these different places. You know, the the growth has to come from the ground up. You know, because you have to have that support. It's like building a tower of of Legos with the the, the little four poster at the bottom and the six poster at the top. Like it just doesn't work. You got to do it the opposite way. Uh, and and that's what Don's going to work on here. And and uh, I wonder how long the locked like if let's say this time next year we talk and and the pandemic is is in the rearview mirror, you know, 
is that lockdown message going to have that same effect four years from now if he runs? Um, I think when when you look at the the undervote for Trump and you look at the overperformance for Republicans, um, I think the number of state legislatures that the Republicans won, they won like three out of 11 gubernatorial races. Uh, they won a bunch of state legislature, legislatures. Um, Democrats obviously uh, lost a bunch of those Senate seats and Republicans gained. Like Republicans gained at every, every level of government except president. Now, there's one big orange obvious reason why they didn't do well at president, and I know that people don't want to admit that he was a terrible candidate and a terrible president, but that's why he underperformed, right? It's why he, he got 350,000 less votes than all the Senates in, in, the, in the states where he ran. Um, uh, and I think that's purely because of the lockdown. You know, Woody Myers, a big factor why Rainwater did so well here is that Woody Myers, the Democrat, was promising a Whitmer-style lockdown. And it was actually Democrats that put Holcomb over the line. So when you look at the difference between Biden and Myers, it's tens of thousands of votes different because our Democrat friends don't want lockdowns either. Right. They want to live their lives with personal responsibility and make their own choices. They don't want to be prisoners in their own in their own home and they're not going to vote for it if it's on the ballot. Um, They just want people to take it seriously. Like when I talk to my liberal friends, they're like, I just want all these kooky ideas to stop and people to wear masks and let's just get this over with as quick as possible. But I'm not for like imprisoning people. Right. So when you look at Holcomb and Myers and Rainwater, you see the Democrat losing a ton of votes. So obviously the lockdowns were the message. Um, and they did talk about lockdowns. They did tweet about lockdowns. They, they, the, the, the Jorgensen campaign ran on a lot of different things. Uh, and it wasn't just one single thing. And it's easy in hindsight to go, well, now that we know all the facts, they should have done this differently. It's sort of an unfair criticism. Um, the Jorgensen campaign did exactly what they promised to do, which was to support down ticket ballots and not embarrass them. Uh, and, you know, for my Liberty Explained website, I went back through all the presidential candidates trying to find, like, the philosophical videos that still apply. And there's all these great videos from Harry Brown about a bunch of different subjects. Harry Brown was a great messenger. Now, at the time, everybody was criticizing him in the same way they're criticizing Joe. It's too many topics, not enough, not enough drilling down. You need, to send, you need three issues. You need three topics. That wasn't what Harry Brown was about. Harry Brown knew that it was a marketing race, and he was there to market it well. Um, and there's 20 different videos on YouTube of Harry Brown giving succinct ideas. Spike Cohn copied this on his YouTube channel. Go look at Spike's YouTube channel. He did a great job of giving a bunch of resources to the libertarian movement. You know, Joe did too. They did this bus tour where they showed up to help local candidates and to, to stump. You know, here in Indiana, they had 400 people show up that heard rainwater, got rainwater signs, got Joe signs. The local party got that message. You know, the, the best Johnson did here was br- brought out 200 people. You know, um, and we thought that was enormous because that was the most, I mean, we had to beg Johnson to come uh, the, the two times and once in 12 and once in 16 he came. Bob Barr wouldn't even entertain the idea of coming to Indiana. And we were the, even stronger as a state party then in 2008. And so Jorgensen was here twice, three times. Spike was here four, I think. Uh, and 
that's not because they focused on Indiana. That's because they were going everywhere that often to help yeah. local candidates and local parties. And they about, they about killed themselves doing it. And, the, and it's a really thankless thing when we sit here and pick on them about their messaging because the whole point of the campaign was to do messaging about a bunch of different libertarian, philosophical, issue-oriented things and to not embarrass candidates and to not drill down on one thing and dive into the culture wars and do this or that. The Jorgensen campaign delivered on its promise. If they had, if they had run on lockdowns, and had only talked about that one thing, the result of this election would not have been any any different. Because, again, the Libertarian Party presidential candidate is totally beholden to the cycle in which they run. The Libertarian Party candidate always does poorer during uh, an election year uh, because people want to stick with the, the or vote against the team that is in power. 2016, it was a toss-up, and there was a little bit of, well, I don't care which one of these idiots win. I'm going to vote for Johnson. The second thing is Bill Weld brought a ton of media and financial contacts. So the 2016 ticket raised a ton more money and got on a ton more media. I tracked 2012. Johnson got about 20 interview hits a month, it felt like. He was getting like 20 a week during 2016. He was everywhere. They, I never in my lifetime thought that I would see a CNN town hall and a 60 minutes hit with Gary Johnson. You know, and a lot of that, um, name ID is the biggest contributor. How do you, how, how do you know who you're going to vote? How, how would you know about Joe Jorgensen? There was no media. And that, that wasn't necessarily the fault of the Jorgensen campaign. The media was so hellbent on getting Joe Biden elected and Donald Trump out of office, they were never going to give Howie Hawkins or Joe Jorgensen a second of airtime. So there's all these structural problems like a fear election with these intense consequences. If Trump or Biden wins, people are scared to vote and take that chance on a third party. It's a close election with all these swing states. There's not as much money. There's not as much media attention. Joe Jorgensen got what Joe Jorgensen was always going to get, no matter what that campaign did. And they decided to play it safe, which is their, what they promised to do the whole time. And they didn't embarrass anybody. Vermin Supreme, I like Vermin a lot. I really think the world of Vermin, and I, I, there's some... I flirted with the idea of Vermin in the primaries. Don Rainwater doesn't get 11% with Vermin Supreme on the top of the ticket. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Um, you know, once Amash dropped out or was chased out, uh, who were you going to pick? Out of those candidates, out of Hornberger, John Mons, Joe Jorgensen, um, the judge, which one of those people were lighting the country on fire? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so whereas Amash was on Meet the Press the Sunday after he he announced his exploratory committee. So it was always going to be a play it safe cycle for the LP. They did what they did, needed to do. They converted that that donor dollars into messaging tools that people can use for a long time and 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 help local parties. Um, Joe Jorgensen was never going to light the world on fire. And, and I don't know why we expected her to. Is it the best? You know, you know the it, will two, four years be different? Would I have liked to seen Justin Amash, for instance? Absolutely, but you know, the the uh, the good was we can't let the what it was the saying the perfect uh, the perfect can't be the, the enemy en of the good. Yeah, right. Jorgensen was good; she was fine. That's so everybody expected her to be fine. 
she didn't disappoint in being fine. <laughs> right. But do you think it's it's a message to the LP in the future that that the messenger really is important, that the message really is important, that that Rainwater, I don't think, would have gone anywhere close to his success if he were more like Joe Jorgensen in, in playing it safe. I think his support came from the fact that he was so outspoken about the lockdowns. And, you know, someone like, again, someone like Ron Paul, who had a very strong message, I, I think that was the foundation of his support, was the fact that he spoke out so strongly against the Federal Reserve and against the the military-industrial complex. And, and he had this this message that resonated with so many people for years and years and years. And he really created a movement. And so, I mean, if you had to pick one or the other, wouldn't you rather have that, that messenger, that person with a strong message that can really rally people as opposed to the person who says, I'm going to play it safe and just try to do well enough to help other people? Um, <clears throat> it depends. Uh, and I know that's a frustrating answer, but the message, yeah. the message, I'm a lawyer. I get it. Yeah. The message and the man meet the moment. And I use man in the Royal man or woman or other, uh, you know, like Ron Paul in 88 didn't light the world on fire to the point that he was so disappointed with his run that he backed Buchanan in 92. Same with Rockwell. They all left the LP and Ron Paul had a very antagonistic, uh, view of the libertarian party. Really? It still does. Like, Adam Dick and his website's writing every anti-Joe thing he could find through this election. Um, you know, Ron Paul running in 2020 probably wasn't going to be the right messenger, right? And that's because Ron Paul focuses on the Fed and he focuses on foreign policy. Well, nobody cares about the Fed in the middle of a pandemic and uh, an economic crisis, and they don't care about foreign policy when... You've got all the other candidates are kind of promising not to do much more. With, but when you look at Ron Paul in 8 and 12, you're talking about economic crisis because of the Fed. <laughs> you're talking about right. we're, we're five years out from terrible wars that were lost. You know, Ron Paul caught on because he was the right man for the moment. He had the credibility in the man, and he had the message for the moment. And... 88 Ron Paul is the same as 2008 Ron Paul is the same as 2010 Ron Paul. There's very different, like, Ron Paul in 2020 is not as effective, uh, and, and it's a fact it can be off-putting in the middle of a vaccine debate. <laughs> you right. know, like, he's not the right man for the moment. Um, and, you know, I think Justin Amash would have been the right person for the moment. You've got uh, two sides that are at each other's throat. You've got in Justin Amash a person that brings people together. I think if you go and uh, run an Amash Gabbard ticket uh, in four years, you, you, you've got the, the left, the libertarian left, the libertarian right are, are appeased by that. And in it, you've got two people who are wanting to bring the country together to work on problems and, and areas of agreement. Those are two people in Tulsi Gabbard and Justin Amash that have credibility, have the right message for the moment because the environment is there. Um, there isn't any choice in the in the Libertarian Party primary uh, in the in 2016 that was ever going to be that person. Um, and were there going to be? Whereas Don Rainwater was the right man with the right message in the right moment in the right place. That's very hard to recreate. 
You know, it's very hard for Donald Trump to recreate 2016. He can't do it because he was the right man at the right moment with the right circumstances and the right election. Uh, people who are politically um, nascent or new to politics think that that stuff can just be recreated, and it can't. It, you cannot recreate, you know, there are very few politicians who, whenever they ran, could win every single time. Like Barack Obama is one of those guys who could probably win every time, even if the media were kind of against him. We know they're not. We know they're all for him, right? But, like, he's just, like, he, he's got that, like, George Bush at the moment, had the right swagger for the, what the country wanted. That's hard to recreate. Like, Al Gore, is Al Gore getting the same sort of beloved response after 9-11 as George Bush? Probably not. You know, now, did that lead to very bad outcomes? Yes. Uh, so, I, I'm, I'm less harsh because I know how hard this stuff is to recreate. The factors of, of going into choosing a candidate, you've got to convince some very smart, very accomplished very successful person to run for office for two years, make no money, put their marriage at risk. They're, they're going to probably lose all of their political connections and friendships, and they're going to lose a ton of revenue. They're going to lose a ton of money. And, and they're going to have everybody online talking crap about them. They're going to have all these people nitpicking at them. Like, it, it, it's a very, like, what person wants to run for president, even as a libertarian? I don't. <laughs> like it'd Not be, me. Right. You know, would you want to leave the successful, peaceful life that you have to run for president as a libertarian? Most people wouldn't. They don't want to do that. Uh, and so, you know, add on that if you run as a libertarian, you don't have power. You become significant in the libertarian party, but like, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there. Uh, so it's very hard to find the right person. And then you have to find the right person for the moment. And that is even more difficult because you don't know, like, Donald Trump, I found him abhorrent. I found him troubling. I found him to be a problem. But, like, January 2020 Trump, like, okay, I, I could deal with four more years. August 2020 Trump, I can't take another four years of this. You know, and the moment shifts in the middle of a campaign even. So, um and I just think people need, before they criticize these can these candidates too much, they have to think about if they were in the shoes of the candidate, the campaign manager, the delegate that selected those candidates, what are the factors that are in front of you? What are the tools you have to work with? And what are the decisions that you would make? And a lot of times I don't know that people would make a lot of different decisions. Maybe they would. Um, should Joe have focused solely like rainwater on the pandemic? Probably. Um, but they did something different. And, and I don't know that if they had done the Don rainwater approach, if it would have really mattered because the moment was so geared towards Trump versus Biden, you know, people were not interested in the third choice in this race and they might be in four years. I don't know. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And and I don't want anything that I'm saying to sound like I don't appreciate what Joe Jorgensen did. Anyone who's willing to, like you said, put their reputation on the line. You're saying what everybody else is saying, and it's worthy of being asked. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I think that's – I think there's just frustration because it felt like it really could have been a libertarian moment, that people were, were so frustrated with the lockdowns, that people were were – upset with these riots and, and with you know buildings being damaged and businesses being destroyed and 
there could have been someone who had the strong libertarian message that Donald Rainwater did. And, and like you said, I mean, he, he was able to win over Democrats, even though he really was coming from a, a right libertarian perspective. I mean, he's, he's pro-life, he's pro-Second Amendment, but because he focused on this issue that was so important to people, he was able to win over people from the other aisle. And I think that's where the frustration comes from, is that people would have liked to have seen that on a national level. But I think you're right, is that, is that when you're in that moment, you don't know what kind of decisions you're going to make. How, Like you said, they're, they're trying to help out people across the country. They're trying not to screw up. And it's it's a lot more difficult to run a national campaign than it, it seems like when you're sitting in there's, the basement. There's a couple other things, too. Like lockdowns are largely associated with kookery. You know, like a, until now, where now we look back and we go, oh, everybody's everybody's anti-lockdown based on these right. election results. But like, is that the same in July when you're setting your strategy, when the only people talking about a lockdowns are also the people who think it's a hoax? You know, and do you want to be associated as the Libertarian Party candidate with conspiracy theorists or perceived conspiracy theorists? I should be you should say, like in the mind of the average voter, if you're trying to have the broadest appeal possible is it the jeffrey tucker route is that the best choice in june or july when you're setting strategy probably not in hindsight in hindsight i mean in hindsight looking back it was the right call but like that may not have been the the parameters the other thing um that i would say is that this campaign did what all libertarian party organizations do which is trying to be too egalitarian there were too many people involved in the campaign, too many people involved at different levels, too many people involved in the, the, the very social media teams and too many different changes. You know, it's like – and nobody wants to be the bad guy to a volunteer. Nobody wants right. to go, there's 14 people contributing to the social media. All of you are fired. But, you know, when Johnson – what do you do when you do Aleppo? You immediately fire your campaign manager, your messenger, like you – a good candidate blames somebody else for their problems. Um, right. You know, like uh, there's never any strategy change. There's never there's too many people involved in all these decision makings because the Libertarian Party wants to be fair and sensitive to people's feelings that volunteer. And if you show up, then you are doing a great service to the Libertarian Party. And and activity is the most determinant in and praise that you get. I don't believe that. I believe you should be praised for being effective and there should be in a campaign a top-down strategy. In in Rainwater's campaign, Sam Goldstein ran it. Sam has uh, run for statewide office several times. Sam has been on the LNC. He was a state chair when I was. He was the he was one of my best bosses I've ever had. He's no nonsense. He was in charge, and he's very deferential to the candidate. But if the candidate gets sideways, he looks at the candidate and goes, "You're out of line. This is what we're doing." You know. There's an, there's a central authority on the campaign that is everybody. There's a clear chain of command on a campaign. And if there's not, you get 15 different directions and you get chaos. And, and that, if I were to say, um, if, and it happens every time, like there's, there's, you know, too many people, every state party and, and all campaigns have this, right? Like you listen to like Barack Obama's campaign manager, talk to John McCain's campaign manager, and they talk about, Oh, the county chairman from Iowa is on the line, too, and we got to deal with it. You know, it's like everybody wants their belly rubbed and wants to be important. And, and like, everybody's not important. <laughs> like, right. You know what I mean? Everybody needs to be effective on the ball and marshalling resources to get the job done. 
It's how I ran it when I was executive director, and you know, it, and and it just has to be done that way because people want a clear delineation of roles, and I don't think the Jorgensen campaign had that, but no Libertarian Party candidate candidate does because everybody's trying to get along because it's a small world, right? right? Like, you know, I'm trying to help the Libertarian Party. Well, or, no, you're trying to win, like, right? Um, so. And I think voters, I think voters can feel that. Like, I think that was a lot of Trump's appeal was yeah. that people, you know, you're getting Trump. You know that the tweets that he's sending out are coming straight from him. There's no way that was filtered through anyone. No. And, and Joe Biden had the same message and same strategy he had through the prime. I mean, he literally is is like if Dave Smith is the most consistent MFer in libertarianism, Joe Biden's the most consistent one in the Democratic Party, because like that dude didn't change his message for anything. He didn't play in any of the games. He that that campaign was very tightly managed and whereas Donald Trump's campaign was very chaotic and uh very poorly ran and the last three campaign managers have gone to jail um whereas Biden's campaign just was like a machine you know they ran it like uh like Obama's 2008 campaign and and it paid off for him you know and the libertarian party needs to learn some of those messages and stop tiptoeing around the fe- the feelings of activists and run a campaign that is is exactly what you're talking about. Um, people focus on the messaging. It's not the messaging. It's the campaign structure. It's the business of the campaign that causes all of these things to be spun out of control. But the people who talk about messaging, um, and I'm not talking about my lovely host here, I'm saying like, I generally see people on Twitter talking about messaging being the problem, and it's because they've never worked on a campaign. I've run dozens of campaigns it's not the message it's the fact that there's no top-down structure and nobody's willing to to tell people they're fired to tell people to what to do everybody soft i don't know if i have permission to do this you're gonna fail it's not how you run a business it's not how you run a campaign it's how you run nothing in life like at we are libertarians there's 40 people involved everybody knows it's my baby i'm in charge you know i'm very nice i'm very benevolent but at the end of the day it's a dictatorship you know, and and yeah. that's why we are an effective brand, because I don't it is collaborative, but there's a clear chain of command. And I, I think that's the boring stuff to talk about is, is the nuts and bolts of how to run a campaign. And that's why you don't really hear people. It's more fun to talk about the messaging rather right. than how to actually structure your campaign. And maybe that's that's why you hear that that idea more and what you hear when you hear me- oh it's about the messaging and then that person's version of what the messaging ought to be is exactly what they want to hear from the candidate so <laughs> right, you're basically right. in essence saying i just wish this candidate had lied to me more you know like it's just to me a it's it's when i hear people talk about the messaging i hear like i don't get how any of this works but i just want people to talk to me and i don't think that they did a good job selling me right okay yeah that- you know which is a, is a criticism, but it's also not the whole puzzle. Yep. Well, Chris Spangle, the We Are Libertarians podcast, the, the Pat Down podcast, the Bob and Tom show. What, what's the name of your other podcast? Now Hear This, Liberty Explain. There's too many to go on. Oh, oh you're all over the – I, yeah. I got to write these down. I got to listen to all yeah. of them. Anywhere else you want to direct people? Yeah, just check out chrisspangle.com or wearelibertarians.com and uh, follow me there. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.